This is Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we explore human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. My name is Seth Dare. I'm one of the hosts of the podcast. My co-host is JJ Janflone. And we're ready to discuss an article from the Washington Post and jump from there to other interesting places. Yeah, what I've been kind of calling this in my notes is the modern uh, human trafficking movement, or sort of anti-human trafficking movement, if you will, is racist as hell. Shocker. News at 11. Not better in 2019. Bummer. Why don't you unpack that a bit? What do you mean by that? It's it's not a great working title. But so and I think we talked about this. We got we started to get into this in our Wilberforce sort of friend or foe podcast that we did at the very end of 2018. And this is something I've heard from a lot of people of color who are who are working in sort of anecdotally working in this human trafficking or abolitionist space which is this this constant narrative of white save, saviorism again see our white savior podcast the the myth of white slavery and this presumption that particularly in sex trafficking that the modern anti-trafficking movement is predicated on this idea of saving white women from black and brown men which then includes this idea of well what are we most like to legislate in the U.S., what are we most likely to criminalize? And it is black and brown bodies, especially those of young men. I don't think anyone who's who's been following sort of U.S. news in the last couple of years, I think the Black Lives Matter movement really drew attention to the fact that there has been a very, very long history of young black men being criminalized and also viewed as, as a threat. But what this Washington Post article that was written, I want to Make sure we give credit to it. We will, of course, link it uh, by Vanessa Boucher and Mark Daku. It came out on January 11th. What it did was I think it did an amazing job of actually proving what a lot of people in this field have thought anecdotally, which is that there there is some systematic racism happening in both the data that we collect as a field and in who is being charged for human tra- trafficking-related crimes. When I compared the data that Vanessa Boucher pulled on who was being charged for crimes with a project that was done by the UCLA Law Review put together by Cheryl Nelson Butler and then uh, a post from Michelle Lilly in 2014 from the Human Trafficking Search Organization is that also who, who are victims of trafficking are predom- within the United States are predominantly people who we identify as racial minorities, but they are very rarely the ones who are quote unquote rescued. So what we have is we have a, a population that is overrepresented in both cases, but only in one case in criminal court. So there's, there's a lot to unpack there, but that's sort of the overall thing is that we as a field are failing both sort of in how we are collecting data, how we are actually serving affected populations within the United States, how we are looking at U.S. policy as sort of this like perfect policy that we can then spill out to other countries. Clearly, that's not the case. And then also how we are sort of criminalizing certain populations. So right off the bat, what did you think when I sent you this article? 
Seth, because I, I was blown away by this article. I was one, on one hand so excited to see it because it's, it's always nice when you see sort of new work being done in the field. But at the same time, I was really angry. Well, one of the first things that stood out is it's just talking about federal cases, which is mm-hmm. not an insignificant amount, but that it's not talking about all law enforcement throughout the country at state and local levels. So the data that they referenced is on humantraffickingdata.org. And they have a methodology where they look through federal cases and they coded it. And they have uh, over 900 federally prosecuted human trafficking cases. So at the federal level, there's going to be less cases than nationwide. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to be more systematically defined. Because that's one of the challenges, as we've talked about, that you have to compare law enforcement data across different states and different localities, which may define it differently and may categorize things in different ways, and it makes it really hard. And the other thing that's hard with human trafficking is, as we've also said, it's hard to sometimes to know if something is labor trafficking because they might prosecute it as something else, which then gives us skewed data. So in this case, because they looked at a set of cases closely and analyzed them and made them consistent, we can be pretty confident that how they categorize them is probably accurate. And for those of you who are sort of unfamiliar with academic data sets, 900 entries is is by no means a small sample size, particularly for a early data set that's only been recently put together and from and from all accounts looking at the website seems to still be being updated i also would say the fact that they have a very clear statement of funding background purpose who actually did the coding who ran the coding who designed the code book Mm -hmm. and then within the methodology that they actually give a very detailed breakdown on the site publicly of how they actually went through everything is, is phenomenal. And a lot of times these data sets are made public in such a way that you can actually sign in and play around with them. So this is a fantastic resource, I think, if you're someone who is sort of new to the field and wants to, to do some work with it. But I, I was just very impressed with, with the work that was done here. It, it made me really happy to, to see a data set that wasn't the, the HTI. I think we've talked about the HTI affair bit just, I think, maybe in passing, mm-hmm. which is the trafficking index, which is run from the University of Denver, Joseph Corbell School of International Studies, and is done by the Human Trafficking Center, which both Seth and I uh, both studied in and, and worked for. And that is a, is a huge project that the Human Trafficking Center has been involved in. But as far as I know, is is not publicly available yet, I don't think. Uh so this is just great to, to see something that people that can compare things to. I'd love to see someone take this, the HTI and the Global Slavery Index that that is put out and sort of compare, contrast data on, on the U.S. I think that would be really fun. But then again, I'm weird. I'm like, a data set, that would be fun to do this weekend. And then I noted that how many of these are uh, minor sex trafficking cases. And uh, between 2005 and 2015, 638 of the 900 or so, 638 are minor sex trafficking. 
321 are adult sex trafficking, and 83 are labor trafficking. So less yeah, than 10% a, are labor trafficking. They make a, a really easy breakdownable way on if you if on their site, if you go to the narrative section, mm-hmm. they actually have visualization graphs and whatnot of this, but then also go into uh, much more detail and, and a breakdown and then also like sort of links to the academic work that's been tied to this. In particular, um, a series of um, publications that were done for the National Criminal Justice System. Uh, There's one that you can download. It's open access. It's from July 2017. That's an empirical analysis on the intersection of organized crime and human trafficking in the United States. And I poured over this. Um, I loved in particular, there was a lot of of breakdown of push and pull factors within human trafficking offenders. What are they motivated by? What are they interested in? You know, why do they do what they do? Which is something that sort of Seth and I, when we were talking about 2019, I think something that we both wanted to focus on a little bit more. You know, why do people traffic other people? Because the, uh, you can't just hand wave and go because people are evil. It's, it's not enough. And they even go into their typologies. Do you know how rare it is? Seth knows. So I'm just mm-hmm. staring at him and ranting. But, but for people listening, do you know how rare it is to get a very clear-cut version of someone's methodology in human trafficking-related cases, you know, case studies, it never happens. Well, the trafficking in person's tip report, I think Seth and I did a happy dance because they extended it to three full paragraphs one year, like their methodology section. It's, it's, it's very rare. So I'm, I'm exceptionally happy that there's actually, you know, a document that talks about how, how were cases collected you know, was it a mom and pop organization or was this a straight up crime ring? Was this a cartel, a mafia, a syndicate? I, I love this. Mm-hmm. So everyone should go. I, I plan on writing both of these people a note tonight to be like, hi, I love you. Can we be friends? And now that I've put it on the internet, I feel like mm-hmm. I, feel shame. I have to be my friend. But Let's get into the article itself now that we've had our sort of social science rant. And so they put out this article in what is Human Trafficking Awareness Month. But also apparently because that Friday, which was the 11th, is Human Trafficking Awareness Day, which I also didn't know was a thing. It's a thing. I guess it's a thing within the month. I don't. People should tell me when there are holidays for things I study. I didn't know. And the article starts off by talking about how there's an estimated 40.3 million people in the world still in in modern forms of slavery. They give a good sort of quick and dirty definition of slavery. Um, The number they have that that um, 40.3. That does come from the ILO. We've, We've talked about why we like ILO numbers, but also why we sometimes disagree with them. Seth just made mention of it. Sometimes it's are you double counting labor and sex trafficking? You know, but for the most part, I'm happy with, with, with ILO counting. So I'll take it. And then they sort of pivot really quickly to talking about the trafficking victims in the United States and who those traffickers within the United States are using numbers from Polaris, whose praises we have sang many a time and the National Human Trafficking Hotline, which we link to on our page in like 
We used to give it out at the end of every podcast, but I think now we just have it in text. Or do we still do we still give it out at the end of every podcast? Sometimes. Yeah, but I was going to say, it's also, if I look at our website, I feel like it's on there like 8,000 times. <laughs> so I feel like it, mm-hmm. it's there. Um, so looking at data on those 900 federally prosecuted human trafficking cases, and then looking at the demographic data, they found that young black male traffickers were more likely to participate in those kinds of trafficking. So looking at sort of minor sex trafficking, you see young black male traffickers more likely to participate. But why might that number be the way it is, Seth? If I'm counting court cases where young black men have been arrested for being traffickers, does that mean necessarily that young black men are always the traffickers? No, because it's only counting people that go through the system and are prosecuted and convicted. So it's not counting people who aren't convicted, people who have better lawyers. And if we look at, um, I'm, and I'm pulling up um, a list from the NAACP, it's that African Americans, particularly young uh, black men, they tend to make up 34% of the correctional population and tend to be arrested more than their white counterparts. Black women are more likely to be arrested than white women, and black men are more likely to be arrested than white men. And that actually has, that's adjusted for population size, and it has nothing to do actually with rates of criminality because white Americans actually are thought to commit more crime than black Americans. The reality is, though, is that they are less likely to be arrested. Well, and it's worth pointing out, there's arrests, and then there's also convictions. True, and that there's a difference there. Do you want to explain that a little bit better, Seth? Well, arrest is who you're going to bring down to the station. Like, you're going to formally go through an arrest process. But that doesn't mean it's going. you're, you're going to prosecute them. It, it doesn't mean somebody's going to press charges. Yeah. So there are people that are arrested for small-time crimes and, and literally let go the same day. Mm-hmm. But actually being convicted, that means you have to get them into a plea or they have to go to trial, usually a plea. And I forget the numbers I've seen there, but you know, those are two sets of numbers worth looking at when you're looking at uh, race and class. Exactly. And, and in certain things, like we know that, for example, for, for drug possession, that young African-Americans are far more likely to have sort of the book thrown at them to have uh, maximum sentences assigned to them. Whereas young white people are less likely to have that maximum sentence. They're more likely to get things like probation for something like, say, marijuana possession and things of that nature. And there's actually a fair amount of literature comparing the opioid crisis, which is largely or has largely in the past targeted predominantly Caucasian populations with the sort of middle class to lower class Caucasian populations to the crack epidemic of the late 80s, early 90s, which largely predominantly focused on lower and middle class black communities and how different law enforcement response was in those two things. Where in the opioid case, it's a lot of, well, how do we treat people? And then in the crack case, it was a lot of, well, how do we incarcerate people? So just sort of a a difference that I think really puts out a lot of the long-term systematic racism that has been present in the United States and is reflected in the judicial system. For, and, the, and the criminal justice system as a whole for, for a really long time. Yeah. And I would point to 
yeah, the, the podcast we did by on, on slavery by another name, the phenomenal book, um, by Blackman, I think does, does a really good job of sort of outlining how there has been this historic slavery via incarceration that's happened in the U S since the abolition of legal slavery at the end of the civil war. Yeah. And so to, uh, go back to racism, which we define every so often, like we don't define racism as hatred. Yeah. Like I used to be on the far right. I used to believe in a racist ideology. And back then I thought, oh, I'm only a racist if I hate, and I don't think I hate anyone. So therefore I'm not a racist. So it's very, very easy for me to say that anyone who says that, that that's bunk. Like just because Mm -hmm. you don't hate somebody doesn't mean you're a racist. I, I don't think slave owners tended to hate their slaves. They were their labor. Now, whether they treated them well, that's a whole other deal. But when we're talking about systematic racism, that's where we get into stereotypes and hierarchies, like who's better than other people? What are the cultural characteristics that we're going to attribute to people who have certain skin tones and things like black criminality, or as they would say back in the times of slavery, Negro criminality, like that was what they said. That's what slave owners said. And that it it was a common notion that blacks were aggressive and prone to crime. So like these aren't new stereotypes and they've carried over for, you know, over a century. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna push back a little bit on on that definition, and like I completely understand where where you're coming from with it. But for me, when I think of of racism, I think of, of prejudice. I think of antagonism. I think of mm-hmm. you know any any time you have a, a firm basis of intolerance that positions you as one thing and someone as the other with you on a higher hierarchy of them, I think that that is a form of at the very least mental violence, sort of that you're doing, where you're creating these really firm distinctions between yourself and and others. And so even if you are part of a movement, maybe that defines yourself more as a separatist or that says, you know, we don't hate, I think that the, the mere presence of those hierarchies, you know, it's certainly not love. It's not love, but we also didn't seek to antagonize the people that I knew. I I think it could be antagonistic. Like, I think it was dehumanizing ultimately. And I think Mm -hmm. it was setting up hierarchies, but it wasn't conscious that we were doing that. Yeah, but that's still, you know, we can argue about like, do intentionality mattering. That's a whole other podcast. We'll circle back to that. But But it's it's important, I, I think, when we're talking about racism to get an idea where we're coming from and to say we're not just saying that, oh, people are arresting people because they're black. It's not that simple. And oh, it, okay. and, and it's, in many cases, probably I, not conscious. Yeah, I know. I agree with you. I don't think that most cops, say, participating in, like, the stop and frisk program in New York were focusing primarily on young black men because they had, uh, they hated young black men. I think it's that in their head, they had convinced themselves that young black men were more likely to commit crimes so we should search them. Now, that's still an incredibly racist, cruel, insensitive, illegal thing to do. 
But I agree with you is that I, I think very few people were going home at night and sort of, you know, rubbing their hands together and, and sort of that Mr. Burns from the Simpsons way and being like, ha ha ha, think of the evil I committed today. Mm-hmm. I think that their intentions were largely good. The issue is, is that that doesn't make a difference for the men and women on the streets who are traumatized by a stop and frisk program, by men and women on the streets who know that they're more likely to be killed by a police officer because of the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's for me, I guess that's what it is, is that that intention doesn't matter. Even if you're acting on wrong information, you're still causing harm to a massive part of the population. And honestly, at this point, you should know better. Because that's sort of my thing is that we live in an age of the Internet. How do you not know better? Well, and the idea of race, race as a cultural determinant, which is mm-hmm. tying in culture and race. And, and there are people I've, I've read where they're like, well, I'm not talking. I'm not a racist. I'm not talking about race. I'm talking about culture. But that only goes so yeah. far because race and culture are often intertwined in the in the notion of racism. And it's not that there aren't any tendencies that you can tabulate by doing research where you say, okay, well, white people, or well, in the case of this, that, you know, black people are this many cases, these people are black and so on and so forth. But then when you start getting into, well, who's who's more aggressive, you're, you're having something where not only do you have to define, like, who is a, who is a race, like how much blood of a certain type do you have to have to have a race but then you have to find things like aggressive and criminality and when you start making cultural assumptions it's just dangerous to apply anything broadly to everyone of a certain quote racial group it doesn't mean that you can't measure out some sort of correlation but that's not the same as me looking at somebody and saying oh you know, because so many people, so many black people do X, therefore that person must be X. That's where it becomes problematic. And and one, correlation is not a causation. But then yep. the other issue is that there is a, a tendency, particularly in, and I can only speak for the Western context, to ascribe correlation only when it refers to minority populations. So, for example, the statistics have shown that the person most likely, say, to shoplift, to commit petty theft, is a white woman ages 18 to 35 yet so someone who is me someone who looks like me someone who acts like me who goes into a store is is more likely to steal and commit a petty crime than a black woman ages 18 to 35 yet still reports both from, from people who work in you know loss prevention in stores and then black women say that they are targeted by loss prevention officers more than white women despite the fact that the statistics have been out there since the nineties, that it's white women who are more likely to steal. So it's, it's a tendency I think of law enforcement of who are predominantly white to believe stereotypes about people, not themselves. And to give someone who they consider to be part of their in group, a benefit of the doubt that they do not extend to other populations. And that's, that's a big issue. And as JJ said, we could do a whole podcast. We could do multiple podcasts on this topic because it's just that complex. Yeah, and we talk we talk about this, I think, a lot in sort of our, our the podcast we do on the white slavery narrative. Uh, the the one in particular we did on the Jim Crow laws, I think, and the new Jim Crow talks about that a lot. Our prison populations one. 
but I think what that says is is not that Seth and I are preoccupied with this topic, but that this is a problem that our field has never fixed. You know, our our field is in many ways a racist field, and it's also a sexist field, and it's a very heteronormative field. And until we address, I think, all of these things, there's going to be a lot of rehashing of what have we done in the past and what are we doing moving forward? Are we really doing anything any better than the early abolitionists were who still wanted free, you know, in many cases wanted freedoms for, for everyone, but only under particular conditions that was still a very separatist situation. And so, you know, you have, you have to be self-aware of what, what your position is within this field, but to, to go back to the article, because it is such a good article it, it talks about specifically looking at these cases of sex trafficking of minors to go all the way back to what Seth said earlier. That doesn't actually in, involve someone needing to press charges beyond the state. A minor doesn't have to press charges as say a victim the, the state does that on their behalf. And so because of that legal minors can't consent to sex, they can't consent to work in prostitution. All that then the state has to do is, is present a case that, a person, the trafficker, offered a minor for sex. You don't need force, fraud, coercion. You don't need sort of circumstances. There's not this issue of psychological coercion. There's not this issue of contextualities. It's an easier case to prove, and it's an easier case to get a conviction on than, say, the case of adult sex or labor trafficking. Now, this does not diminish the fact that the sexual trafficking of a child is a horrifying and terrible thing and should be prosecuted. It's just that we're, we're trying to say that there, there are victims at all different levels here. And in, in this case, I would say probably sex trafficking of minors and then labor trafficking of minors are probably the two easiest to prove just because the fact that someone is under the age of 18, it's, it's an easier case for the state to make against a trafficker. Yeah, and to get back to definition, sex trafficking of a minor involves commercial sex, mm-hmm. which differentiates it from from statutory rape or ped- well, pedophilia. I don't know if that's a legal term, but statutory think, rape. I, yeah, but any, you know, I think I think it actually is. You can't you can't have consensual sex with a minor. Yeah, and a lot of times, what we've seen in adult trafficking cases is that this issue of did people consent or not will be we brought to court in the case of a minor for labor or sex trafficking there is no issue of consent because you can't consent you can't even consent to a working contract under the age of 18 so unless you know you have an emancipation thing and that's a whole different mm-hmm. ball of wax so that it's it's just an easier case to make and because it's an easier case i think a lot of times and it's also a horrifying case i i can't imagine you'd ever find a jury that is okay with a with a child being chained in a sweatshop or a child being forced to make pornographic films. You're not. I don't really think that people are constituted to, to feel that way to feel okay with it. So prosecutors do seem really motivated to do that, and it's just it's a harder, more expensive, more difficult case, and you may not win if you're trying to to look into adults who are who are trafficked for sex or for labor. So. Looking at this detailing, we do know that they prosecuted more than twice as many minor sex trafficking cases as adult sex trafficking and labor cases combined. And we know of them that, and I'm just going to read directly from the article here, I'm quoting, but we will link it to you. You should go read the whole thing. 
quote, first between 2005 and 2015, so 10 years, 57% of the defendants in minor sex trafficking cases are black, compared with 43% in adult sex trafficking cases and only 18% in labor trafficking. And skipping all the way down, in other words, defendants, in the case of sex trafficking of minors, the type of trafficking case that carries the highest penalties and is most likely to be prosecuted are significantly more likely to be young, black, and male. And as the article ends, our anti-trafficking criminal laws are written in such a way that it makes it far more likely that young black men are prosecuted significantly more than other perpetrators of human trafficking. Now, Seth and I have gone into why that might be. But looking at the article, Human Trafficking, Not Black or White by Michelle Lilly, we see that, at, and she cites directly from a 2014 um, report by the Office of Victims of Crime, of confirmed sex trafficking victims in the U.S., 40.4% of victims were African-American. That is a significant amount, particularly when you compare the population of African-Americans to sort of white, Hispanic, and Asian populations in the United States. Let me pull it up again. Hold on. There we go. I clicked away. So, and that number is almost four times higher than the percentage of African-Americans living in the United States. So, when we're looking at the minors in sex trafficking who've been picked up, in 2014, black children made up 55% of all the prostitution-related arrests in the U.S. So why are we seeing huge amounts of African-American children who are victims of sex trafficking and also being arrested for sex trafficking? Why, why, are, why is this population overrepresented on both? Why is that present on both? And one of the things that came out was a study by the Urban Institute that said that when traffickers themselves were interviewed, however, they did not give a demographic of if those traffickers interviewed what, what their race was. Many said that white women could make them more money. Trafficking women would make them more money who were white. But trafficking black women would give them less jail time if they were caught. Hmm. But that almost all traffickers in the U.S. and engaged in prostitution agreed that it was better to have a wide variety of races available because that was just more profitable. You could just appeal to, to a wider variety of clients. And I mean, I would just read the entire urban Institute study. It's over 300 pages. <laughs> I get why people might, might not be really super into it, but it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, there's, there's large sections on sort of just sex trafficking and child pornography and, and that you don't really need to get over to. But that, that's a lot of racial disparity, particularly because we work in the trafficking field, and we've talked about this in some of our other podcasts that we've done. The image that we get from sex trafficking is of a young white girl or white child being trafficked by sort of a scary other, you know, this, this black man, the scary man of color, you know? And, and to that, I really want to push people to go reading The Racial Roots of Human Trafficking by Cheryl Nelson Butler. I will also link it below. It is from the UCLA Law Review. It, too, is over 100 pages, and there's a lot there, but it is absolutely amazing. It talks a lot about race and racism shaping the anti-trafficking movement. It's phenomenal. 
I got citations from, from just reading this alone that I was in love with, but she has a section on disproportionality and talks about how this idea of children of color and just bodies of color in general being viewed as sexualized in a way that white bodies are not. And how this goes back to slavery itself and, and, and colonization is amazing. It, it really goes into sort of this detailing. And one of sort of the conclusions that comes out of this is that black bodies in the United States are positioned both to be more sexual and to be more criminal. So when African-Americans, even African-American children are victims of a crime, they're assumed in sort of this, this racialized system as being somehow complicit in what happened to them as, as being somehow not true, innocent, perfect victims the way maybe a, a white counterpart would be. And that then when they're found to be engaged in a crime, it, it's viewed to be, well, of course. It's, it's viewed to be sort of a, a form of, well, of course you're, you're involved in something that is morally corrupt because you're already morally corrupt because of your race. And what... And, and this all goes back to like what Kimberly Crenshaw talks about with this idea of, you know, this, this is a control of people of color, women and men of color by the state. It's, it's using social controls and surveillance and, and law enforcement to control this, this population that's deemed as other. And so there's just, there's, it's, it's so amazing to see this in the Washington post. And I, and I love the idea that it's finally getting, attention on a, on a national scale. It makes me so happy, but it makes me really sad because it's yet a reminder that as a field, we're failing in many ways. We, we failed to address this issue and we're continuing to fail to address this issue. And, you know, as, as a white scholar, I'm, continuing to profit off of sort of the privilege of not being in this group. And I perhaps have not, I, I, I haven't actually, no, not perhaps I haven't, I haven't addressed this adequately in my work. I haven't, I haven't done the work on this the, the way that I should have. And, and I, I need to do better, but I think we all, we all need to do better. And I almost, it's no, the, the human trafficking community I think needs to make an apology <laughs> to, to a large portion of, of the U S population that have been, I think, unjustly both attacked in this way and positioned as criminals when they haven't been. And then also victims, huge swaths of victims who haven't been treated as such, who, who, who have gone silent. Uh, lots of, lots of young men and women in, in the African American community who just haven't had access to survivor services or victim services and whose, whose bodies and what's happened to them hasn't been identified. And that's really upsetting. If we're in a field that says that we're, we're dedicated to not doing harm to others, we need to acknowledge that we're act we are, we have, and we are still actively contributing to harming people. And it, it's racist. It, 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 that's what it is, is that it's racist. We've been complicit or active participants, depending on, on, you know, what we've done in a racist system. I don't know if you can move forward without like admitting that, I think sort of, I don't know. Seth, what do you think? 
Well, I think have to move toward, I don't know, recognizing that it's more complicated than the data. That, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's a fact based on this data set that most... And, and others, yeah, fair. But, you know, that it's uh, young African-American men who are prosecuted the most for minor sex trafficking and adult sex trafficking. And there would be those, especially like white nationalists, who would say, well, that means black people are criminals. See, the data says so, but you have to go deeper into the data. And that's partially what we're doing is like, well, there's more to that number. And it looks like we should dig deeper to see, well, maybe we should think about why that is and what we can do about it. Because ultimately, just saying something's racist doesn't, it, it's, it can be a good first step, but it doesn't get very far. Oh, yeah, no. But I feel like it's, ne- it's a necessary first step. But yeah, I guess that's the next question is, is what, what, what do we do? What do we do as a field? about this because it's not enough to just congratulate ourselves like yay we figured out something is bad what what do we do next yeah and it's not like we want to say oh like i mean jj and i are are white so we don't want to say well you know we don't want to be paternalistic or white savior so we're just gonna go and work in an ice cream shop our whole at full time for the rest of our life or something like that which which at least would make more people happy because it's ice cream But I think there's lots of well-intentioned people who do good things. And I think Mm -hmm. it's good to want to do good things and and to want to help people. But it's good to also be aware of our biases in ways that we can do harm so that we can avoid doing harm. Yeah. And and I think also, too, we need more more diversity in the field. We need to actually Mm -hmm. look at doing inclusive scholarship. I think... And then I think a big a big step towards maybe fixing the field, quote, quote, unquote, is more data sets like this, doing more research into going going back maybe to to Monica Peterson, our dearly departed colleague and and her work of, you know, who who are we saving as a field? You know, who are we focused on saving and what are we saving them to and why are we? focused on certain populations over others. That I think is essential and actually doing that, applying it to the work, getting up every day and actually doing that in the field, doing research that is targeted and honest and reflective and that involves communities and that keeps going and building on itself. I think that is really important. Well, and things that this data set doesn't show, it doesn't show arrests. So we don't know who else was arrested and how that breaks down racially. Mm -hmm. We don't know what social class people here are from. Yeah, that's not present. And part of it, and and I know there's various opinions about Me Too, but one of the the takeaways I had that I think is important is rich, powerful men can more easily get away with it. And... Like here, if you're looking at people and saying, well, which which human traffickers have money who are able to make court cases that are drawn out? And like if people have more money, they're generally harder to prosecute. Yeah. Yeah. And I think another another thing that that pops up in here, too, is the idea of, of the role of law enforcement in this or the judicial system. So this this mm-hmm. was a study that was was funded, which I think was great. So it was funded by a grant from a Department of Justice, National Institute of Justice. 
So I, I think it's actually great, though, that we're seeing a, a reflective organization, you know, too. I'm, I'm happy about that. So beyond awareness and better data, you have any other thoughts on improvements, solutions? My, I would just love to see this expanded. Hey, if y'all want to hire me, I'm a good coder. No, I would, I would love to see this data expanded. I would love to see a class component. I would love to see arrest records if that is possible to, to pull from. You can find on the data set who, like, who's the prosecutor, the federal prosecutor, but I would love to see if maybe is there a prosecutor who's really made sort of labor trafficking their niche interest and maybe so they're specifically going after those cases. And while we talked about sort of the very depressing state of the current TVPA system and, and funding and whatnot, there is ideally supposed to be funding for a specific federal prosecutor for trafficking moving forward from 2019 to 2020. So I would love to see if adding on in this year what the data pulls out. So there, there are lots of ways where I could see this expanded in ways that would be very, very useful. I also would love someone to take this. Unfortunately, my dissertation is always locked is already locked in. So I can't but I would love to see someone take this and run and run like a, a mixed method sort of study on this that involved, you know, qualitative and quantitative work, you know, actual narrative, maybe coding of, you know, in court statements of, of traffickers and, and who is trafficked and maybe victims advocates and things like that. I think there's a lot to play around with here. But it's it's an amazing first start, and I'm I'm so happy to see it. And so thumbs up to them. We should note their uh, labor trafficking chart. In that one, it looks like it's Hispanic are the majority, then white people, then black people. Yeah, but my my issue and the reason why I focus predominantly just on the sex trafficking one is that if if you look at the number of cases they had for mm-hmm. labor trafficking, so low. Yep. That that. There, there's sort of there's less data to play around with there just because those cases were so low. But that in itself is an area of inquiry. Again, why why is sex trafficking of maybe minors far more? Why are there far more prosecutions of it? Is it just that there's more arrests? Again, it, it might be harder to find children working in in a in a labor trafficking situation than it than it is to find children in a sex trafficking situation. I, I can't imagine that you're like, say, advertising on the internet to try and find a, a seven-year-old to clean your home, or you may be advertising looking for, for someone to sexually exploit who's prepubescent. So I, I can see why that might be different in terms of just arrest awareness, which then could look, lead to low prosecution numbers. But again, I would want to see more of that data. But overall, really excited about it. And I've fallen down a little bit of a rabbit hole now looking at all of uh, Dr. Boucher's work um, on human trafficking, uh, because it's... I. I had seen this data set uh, before, but I hadn't done too much playing around with it. It was initially posted on the Monkey Cage, which is a fantastic uh, poli-sci blog that's run by the Washington Post and then kind of got major attention. But I, I'm, I'm just so happy to see this like actually getting like really firm academic work out there in the world. All right. Well, that was a broad view of the article and the data and a very complex subject. Yeah, this wasn't a happy light one. We're really not helping ourselves because we also did all of all of our TVPA stuff was a little bit heavy and sad too, I think. So we're not being super cheerful. But not shocking in this field. This is this is why I hang out with cats a lot. To quote April Lugate from Parks and Rec, they should be rewarded for not being people. And so maybe on that end we end. Thank you guys so much for, for listening and caring and 
please play around with the data sets. Let us know what you find. We'd love to hear if, if there's anything else interesting that you've pulled up. All right, everyone. Have a good week. Bye. Bye. Mwah. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.